Welcome to the IPO Drop. I am your host, Julian Rowe, partner at London-based VC firm Latitude. Today, we're going to be diving into Coinbase's imminent direct listing on NASDAQ to see what we can learn from it. The IPO Drops, a new series of conversations around the process of tech companies transitioning from private to public. We're going to be using pre-IPO filings or S1s to deep dive into companies to understand what makes them unique. While these filings may look dry, they're actually a really rich source of information to help lift the lid on some of the most important companies of our age. We may have heard of many of these companies, we may be users of some, but these pre-IPO filings, these S1s, are a chance to really go under the hood and draw out insights and learnings. And through the IPO drop series, we also demystify the process of going public through an IPO, in this case, direct listing, SPAC, whatever financial innovation is around the corner. And we'll also be taking learnings from companies that have gone public. And we've got some amazing episodes lined up with founders, operators who can walk us through how it played out for them. We have an amazing group of speakers who we want to use today to break down Coinbase's direct listing on NASDAQ. We have a crypto founder, a Silicon Valley growth investor, and an IPO advisor. And believe me when I say each of them is truly world-class in their domain. Dimitri, Alex, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join this conversation. And maybe we can just have each guest introduce themselves before we kick off. Dimitri, do you want to go first? Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm Dimitri. I'm the CEO of Copper. The company uh, was started in early 2018. Early in my career, I spent some time on the buy side as a quant and as a CTO. We started the business basically to help buy side players have infrastructure in the crypto space. And I've been going since then. Now the company is around 60 people. We're servicing some of the smartest um, investors uh, in the space, including Trading firms like high frequency trading firms, market makers, prop shops, we're servicing hedge funds for different types of strategies, market neutral, startup, etc. I'm doing that <laughs> for the last three years. But yeah, you know, a month in crypto is, is about, you know, 10 years in the traditional uh, financial services space. And you know, we're very excited how those two worlds would merge down the line. So thank you very much uh, for organizing and for having me here. Thanks, Dimitri. And Alex, do you want to go next? Yeah, for sure. And thanks for having me on today. So I'm a general partner at Meritech Capital. We were one of the pioneers in late stage venture capital. We've been around since 1999. We partner with companies usually at the expansion stage. So, you know, anywhere from a few million of revenue all the way up to IPO and pre-IPO. Historically, most of our investments have gone into B2B software companies like Salesforce and NetSuite and Snowflake and Datadog. We've also about 30% of our investments have gone in consumer companies like Facebook and Nextdoor. Uh, and Roblox, which actually just went public yesterday. And so and in my prior life, I was also an investment banker like Julian, focusing on helping companies go public. And when I started out as an investor, people kept asking me about reports on S1, so decided to start posting these on the internet. And fortunately, at my last firm, we were an investor in Coinbase, and so have some unique insight into what they're building. And they've, they've done an incredible job and excited for the uh, upcoming offering. So thank you for everyone for being on here today. And thanks to Julian for having me. Thanks, Alex. And I can highly vouch for Alex's IPO breakdown blog series. It's a brilliant repository of insights. And then Mike. Thanks, Julian. Hey, everyone. Mike, corporate securities partner with Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati. We are a uh, full-service law firm originated out of Silicon Valley. So the firm has been around since kind of the beginning of when Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley. And as a firm, we've, we represent over 300 public companies, over 3,000 private companies, and uh, have worked with the classic working with the founder through the life cycle, through the IPO 
IPO with companies like, you know, working with Apple through their IPO, working with Google, you know, through their early stages and through their IPO and beyond. I personally have been with the firm for going on almost two decades now. Unlike you guys who are creative and, and had all sorts of uh, fantastic talents, I'm a recovering accountant. And so I jokingly say I'm probably the most risk averse human being on the planet being both an accountant <laughs> and a lawyer, but really delighted to be here. I'm in our London office for the firm and, uh, and my background in, in particular is working with companies in that kind of growth stage through IPO and working through the IPO process. So I've worked with lots of companies on, on prepping for their IPO or as well as going through the process there. Thanks, Mike. So switching gear, we've got a ton of ground to cover. Coinbase, the headline, one of a kind IPO. Poster child for a new economy based around decentralized technology, venture-backed rocket ship. And as we'll go deeper on today, it's a beast of a company. So going to Alex first, this is a pretty big question, but can you walk us through just a few highlights on what we can learn about Coinbase from its S1 filing that make it stand out for you as a business? Yeah, for sure. I believe it will be one of the most valuable fintech companies in the world once they start trading in a few weeks, which I suspect it will be end of March, early April, given they recently filed. And there are the top three digital currency exchange in the world. And so Coinbase, uh, Brian Armstrong in 2012, read about crypto and said, hey, why isn't there, there should be a way for people to onboard into the crypto market. And he created Coinbase. And from the early days to today, Coinbase has changed, although not that much. It is really a on-ramp for crypto. They make almost all of their money from trading fees. And it was part of our investment thesis historically was, hey, this is the clean well-lit room in crypto, where in the early days, a lot of the exchanges were very challenging to use. You weren't sure if you were going to actually have your crypto or if they could store it securely. Coinbase has never been hacked. And they offered just a really simple to use mobile and web app where people could buy and sell and trade and send and receive crypto. And it's taken off. They've got almost 50 million users to date. And They've transacted, you know, many hundreds of billions of dollars uh, over the lifetime of the company. I and mean, continuing to grow, they grew revenue 500% last quarter, year over year, while generating almost 50% EBITDA margins, which is a proxy for profit. So not only is it going to be one of the largest fintech companies in the world, I think it's going to be, you know, one of the most profitable as well. They have an incredible business model. So it's a it's extremely unique company, and they're they're number three according to Coin Market Cap in terms of total trading volume. They've got about 45 assets and Bitcoin is still the majority of the revenue. So about 50% last year was from Bitcoin, although they continue to add more and more assets to diversify those revenue streams. So they also talk about them being a platform from institutions. While institutions actually make up most of the trading volume on the platform, most of the revenue is still coming from the retail side. They charge consumers much more to trade on the platform than institutions, obviously. So as of last quarter, they had about 65% institutional, 35% retail, although about 90% of the revenue is coming from those retail investors. So it's been a fascinating ride. Clearly, the company's very correlated with the overall crypto market. As you can see, a lot of the charts align with the growth in crypto, and crypto has been going up a lot recently. And so it's a perfect time for Coinbase to go public. It's that combination, isn't it, of scale, growth, and profitability, which you just very rarely see. It's not an old company in the context of most companies that are able to achieve that. So just on that margin perspective, there are a couple of things, I think. One is how they acquire customers. And the second part is just what a commercial beast this is, which I think differs from a lot of the rhetoric around a fair financial system and low fees or wanting low fees. And 
Yeah, for sure. So I'll talk about the acquisition channels for them first. And they talk about it in the S1. And you can also tell this by how little they spend in sales and marketing, but 90% of their users come organically through the platform. Like I said earlier, this clean, well-lit space in crypto has been super important for their growth because people know, particularly in Western geos, that Coinbase is the most trusted brand to transact with crypto. And that's been really important for their growth. And they've invested a lot in security and they've been on the forefront of a lot of legislation and they've worked well with regulators to make sure that they were not doing anything wrong or having people on their platform that shouldn't be where other platforms haven't focused on that as much. And so the regular consumer in particularly Western geos who wants to transact with crypto, Coinbase is the de facto place to go. And your second point on the commercial side, yes, it is a outstanding business model. And as you can tell in the financials, Coinbase is charging between 50 and 60 bips on all the volume to their platform. If you look at some of the revenue from trading exchanges in the US for equities that trade on the NASDAQ or NYSE, if you kind of do some math around those, it's maybe one bip is some of their trading fees and Coinbase is 50x higher than that. And so while they are this great place to transact for crypto, they're charging their customers a premium to use the solution. And that instantiate itself in their, in their margin profile. Like I said, they did almost 600 million in revenue last quarter in one single quarter. They're at about almost two and a half billion dollar run rate. And they generated, let's see, about $300 million of adjusted EBITDA at a 50% margin. And last year they generated hundreds of millions of dollars in cash. So not only are they growing incredibly quickly, they're growing incredibly profitably and they're not spending money to acquire users. If you think about other FinTech companies in the US and really anywhere that we see and evaluate all the time, they're spending a ton of money on customer acquisition. Coinbase last quarter of sales and marketing was 4% of revenue, which is almost unheard of. And they do call it out in their S1 that, hey, they, they could see fee pressure over time. And I do believe that's the greatest risk. That's been a risk factor for the company for a long time though. And no one else has been able to seem to caught up and develop the brand recognition that they have as of yet. So it's going to be really interesting to watch there. And I imagine public market investors are going to assume that, hey, the fees are very high. If there's another platform out there that people can use, they might leave Coinbase to focus on it. And they, they also mentioned that a lot of their trading volume is derived from a very small group of individuals. And given the nature of crypto assets, right? Hey, you can send, they're very easy to send and receive. Anyone with an internet connection, if there's another exchange that was as good as Coinbase, you could see them lose some of those power users where they generate a ton of revenue. So I think that's going to be something that public market investors really continue to dig in on. So stepping back, Coinbase has been a front door for retail investors, a safe front door, early mover advantage. But if we take a bigger lens on you know, what's going to be happening here over the coming years, you've got this big institutional wave, which Coinbase isn't necessarily, at least today, brilliantly positioned for in terms of all the functionality and all the back end you need to really support that. And then there's the elephant in the room that even on the retail side, Coinbase isn't actually the largest retail exchange. The two largest retail exchanges sit in China. So you've got this monster of a business, which you can look at the financials, you know, jaw drops, but in the broader world, it's a piece of the picture, but as crypto evolves, it's just going to be a part of it, unless it can find its, its second act. Mike, switching to you, I, I know you're a student of S1s and how companies choose to talk about themselves in them. Maybe just uh, as a starting point, you can just contextualize what this moment is for Coinbase as a business, as it 
transitions from private to public because this is the first time it's really had to articulate itself it's, and a lot of thought goes into how it does it through words through numbers and you know that's a, a sort of process in and of itself which i'm sure will be enlightening to many of the founders today yeah thanks julia you're right this is this is a bit of a coming out party for a company and it's a scary part in time for a company also because it's a high wire act of explaining the story you have a lot more flexibility when you're a private company to, to explain the story. You don't have to talk in the same way all the time to everyone there. But once you become a, a public company, you've got to have a consistent message across all investors because not all your investors are necessarily sophisticated. The discussion you have with one institutional investor that's a private investor in you may be investing for certain reasons, while another one will have a different lens on you. And so you have a different conversation with them. So this is a bit of a trying to bring together the story in a way that the general public is meant to understand it. The, the way that we always kind of talk about it when we're going through the, the drafting process is, would you be able to show this S1 to your grandmother and explain it in, in, and have, have it be explained back by somebody who is not a technology person or in a regular investor necessarily? The company will work with a combination of bankers, lawyers, accountants, its, its shareholders, its management team, and oftentimes there's third-party IPO consultants that get involved in the process to help craft the story. The disclosure process is a combination of the objectives of the IPO. Is the company raising capital? Is it establishing a market? If you look at some companies where it's a simple story and you know you're, they're the third player coming into a market, it looks a little more formulaic. I think in this case, you definitely have a groundbreaking event, right? This is this is a first a first mover type event. And then there's always that tension, as you're alluding to, between how much you disclose and how much you hold back. You need to be able to to show enough. So as you say, people who aren't experts in this field can get their head around your business and the market you're operating and the dynamics of that market. But you don't want to show so much that when you're reporting on a quarterly basis, you've got to keep reporting this information and people are going to be judging you against it. So you want to be Super thoughtful. I'd love your views on how you feel Coinbase has, has managed that high wire because you could argue that they've actually disclosed an awful lot here, you know, more than we usually see at this stage. My guess is if this is like any other groundbreaking IPO, they went out, they had conversations with, with the banking team where they went out and did some non-deal roadshows, got some feedback, figured out what people cared about. They spoke with the analysts as well. They figured out what are the metrics that are going to explain where the company is going. The hardest part for valuing a company is that although everyone uses GAAP financial statements because the SEC requires you to have GAAP financial statements, they're not, and this is speaking from an accountant perspective here, this is probably blasphemy, but it's not easy to get all the way through the accounting financial statements and actually understand what's under the hood. There are leading indicators that, that, that investors want to see, that the analysts want to see, that explain where the business is going. And that the company will want to report, you know, it, not only that, this is an unusual one because I suspect the investor base here will be a mix of financial, traditional financial players, all the way to tech investors that are more used to seeing like SaaS software, right? And, and so the metrics that everyone's going to be clamoring for will run a whole range. What was really interesting in this one is, is how, if you go into the MDNA in here, they've got some really interesting key performance indicators, things like assets on platform and monthly transacting users. Those are, are metrics that they use to monitor the business, but they're not necessarily required to be disclosed. Now, the SEC will, will nudge them and say, if you're using these or if investors need these, you should put them in there. There was a careful conversation around 
what can be useful, what cannot be useful, and what should we disclose now? Because the other thing you pointed out, Julian, is they're going to be saddled with that on a quarterly basis on continuing to disclose those items. The other thing I'd add is this is a new market for, for everyone, right? And so they're going to set a trend. If you look at somebody like a Twitter or a Google, the metrics that they put in there oftentimes get mimicked by other players. They set the standard for disclosure in, the, in their sector. So I'd love to pick out a couple of disclosures and flip it back to you, Alex, because I think they're really interesting in how investors are going to look at this company. There are a couple of disclosures which, you know, just for, for background are pretty unusual. They look at their own performance, their own revenues, reference against the price of Bitcoin, and also the S&P 500 against crypto market capitalization. So what they're trying to do here in a market which we all know is very volatile, they're trying to put reference points out there to help investors understand what will be a key driver of their own performance, which begs the question, Alex, bottoms up, you can look at the financials top down, you can look at the world of crypto. How do you value a company like this today? It's very challenging, I think, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But just before I get into that on the metrics side that we were just talking about, they put in quite a bit of metrics. And what I did was I went in analyzed them and created a bunch of different ratios on some of the ones against the metrics that they had reported. And some really interesting things come out where if you just take their transaction revenue, which is just the revenue stream that they make on trading volume, and you plot that against the trading volume they report in the S1, the lines are very closely tied um, and, and not surprising, right? They're trying to diversify the revenue base away from this just this retail transactional component. But even if you look at it today, it's highly correlated with that. And it's interesting because if you look at some of the ARPU by user stats, and so for someone who's trading on a monthly basis, last quarter, the implied ARPU was about 850 bucks. For someone across the entire base of customers, the ARPU was about 50 bucks. So they have a small amount of transacting users, which is less than 10% of the base that have an average annualized revenue per user that's 10, 20x what the average user has. And so not only is the company very tied to the crypto market on transaction revenue, they're very tied to a small group of users who are doing a bunch of monthly transactions. So that will be another interesting point. I'm curious how they disclose that over time. And then before getting to the valuation, the last thing I'd say is their market share. So we talked about before where they're a top three global exchange. They're not number one. They hold about 12% of the world's crypto assets, according to what they disclose, but they've grown their market share. So based on the numbers they report, they had about a 5% market share in March of 2018. Now that's up to almost 12%. So they've more than 2x their market share over that time period while not spending much money on acquiring new users, which I found pretty unique. And so there's certainly some network effects around the business. And then on valuation, here's the easy part on valuation. Coinbase just did a secondary at $100 billion valuation. So they're essentially telling the world that we think in a sort of subtle way that we might be worth around $100 billion. They're obviously not saying that. There's no valuation disclosed in the S1. The world can decide how to value the company. But that makes it a bit easier. The hard part about it is the volatility. And what most people do, particularly for SaaS companies, it's pretty easy. There's like 50, 60 public SaaS companies out there. They typically trade on one, maybe two metrics, which is an enterprise value figure over their forward revenue projections. 
and they come up with a multiple. And some of the ones that have been around a long time, they tra trade on free cash flow multiples. And so it's pretty simple to figure out, hey, this company is growing at XYZ rate. They should trade at generally XYZ multiple. Coinbase is completely in the league of their own. There, there's really no fintech public comparable for the business, just given they're the first mass crypto exchange to go public. A firm is out there that recently went in the buy now pay later space. People could look at Afterpay again in the buy now pay later space. I'm just thinking about next gen financial infrastructure companies and Coinbase, certainly a league of their own in terms of metrics, but the volatility I think is going to give a lot of potential investors some, some heartache. But if you look at just the multiples and like I was saying, EV to forward revenue, they don't disclose that in the S1, but if you just do some math around it, if they traded it 40 times, next year's revenue and they grew at 90%, that gets you to about a hundred billion. And so you can back sell into whatever number that you want, but because of the direct listing, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, I think there's going to be a lot of volatility in this stock and it's going to be pretty hard to value at this point. You just have these moments where companies that are defining new markets, it's hard to find comparables. And then you look at the financial profile and there's not much out there that looks similar on that basis either. It's, it's very difficult. But the last point you make, that's a really interesting one around volatility. And this is an opportunity to get just a little bit technical on the way that Coinbase is going public. So we mentioned up, up front that Coinbase is going public via something called a direct listing. And I think the volatility, which Alex is alluding to, is not just that process, but some of the mechanics which Coinbase is choosing to use in how it does a direct listing, particularly around lockup. So maybe just switching it back to Mike, you could just Give us the, the 101, what is a direct listing? How is it different to an IPO? And then maybe we can pick up that point around lockup. Sure, so let's do kind of first principles. So a IPO is as advertised, it's an initial public offering. So the company is, is registering with the SEC a block of shares and they're putting them out in the market to, set, to trade with this. Now the catch is, although you've got a class of securities that is now registered. The only shares that are technically in the public domain initially are the shares that are registered for sale in the IPO, and they can be traded immediately unless there's any sort of other contractual restrictions around them, but generally they're, they're not. The whole point of an IPO is to actually start establishing a trading market. So it's get a, a block of share meaningful for many companies you're talking about in a 15 to 25% you know, range of the company's cap table is often offered and it creates a trading market. And the rest of the shares are generally restricted in their ability to resell. So folks who are like the venture capitalists and the and the founders that have, have significant stakes in the company, they can't immediately sell or if they can sell, it's usually subject to volume limitations. So in addition to that, there's generally a lockup agreement on all the private shareholders for a period of time, usually 180 days, although there's some negotiation around that in really, really hot markets. And that allows the market to kind of settle out on, in the public domain on the, on the trading. It also allows the underwriters to have enough free market to help do stabilization. What happens in that initial public offering is the company sells a block of shares to the underwriters who then sell it to the public, whether it's mutual funds and those institutions ultimately then buy the shares or you have a retail component where you have people on Robinhood that are buying directly in some cases. In a direct listing, you're basically going to the exchange and saying, here's our stock, start a market for us. And to make that happen, you've got to have enough people that are willing to transact 
to start a market. So direct listing is both starting a process where you're registering with the SEC so you can also be listed on an exchange. In this case, it's NASDAQ. And then the other piece that goes alongside it, although there's an S1 in this situation, the S1 registration statement is effectively a resale registration statement. The challenge there is how do you set the market when there hasn't been a market previously? So there's a lot of effort around the initial reference price and kind of figuring out what that is, which is similar to the IPO price, but ultimately the company doesn't raise any money. And the objective here in a, in a company like Coinbase is to establish a, a market for liquidity for their shareholders, their optionees, their employees, so people can get a true sense of how much their shares are worth. They can transact in them. And then eventually, someday, Coinbase may decide they need to raise capital, and so it gives them easy access to, to the market. But this is about establishing valuation and, and, and price discovery and liquidity. The direct listing is super interesting, right? Because as an insider... Insiders have to sell shares to create a market. The company's not issuing any, like Michael said. And so as an investor in a company, if your company goes IPO, you obviously look at the share price on day one and people are you know, curious where it lands, but you can't, you have to sit in your hands for six months, which is that lockup period. Coinbase, anyone can sell any amount of shares that they choose essentially on, on day one, there's no restrictions. And so it's going to be super fascinating, particularly for some of the large investors in the company, what they decide to do with their shares. Because take Andreessen Horowitz, for example, they own about roughly uh, 16% of the shares in the company. And the fund size that they invested in, I don't know how big it was, maybe 500 million, a billion around there. On day one, if Coinbase is worth $100 billion, they're going to 15x, 16x their fund. So I imagine they're going to be interested in potentially letting go some of their shares on day one. But if you, as an investor, you can't just go trade or transact 15% of your shares because the stock could absolutely plummet with all that supply. And so it's going to be really fascinating just to see the potential volatility in Coinbase's shares, because I imagine the retail component will be quite high because people will think of this as a way to play the crypto market without actually buying crypto. At the same time, you've got all these insiders in the company who have seen just massive appreciation of their own shares and might be looking to liquidate. So we'll see how those two opposing forces kind of collide on day one, but it's something I'm, I'm really excited to take a look at. Direct listings have been around pretty much since Spotify. That was the first large tech company of note to, to try it out. And there were a lot of people speculating that that would be an absolute mess, but actually it turned out pretty effective, but it was also a very managed process around you know, placing shares, lockups, this is the first one that I'm aware of, at least, where it's like wild spirits and it's crypto. And will Coinbase yes. share price drive Bitcoin or will Bitcoin share price drive Coinbase? So it's going to just be fascinating to watch. This is a company which has been through an absolutely wild ride, given the correlation between its own performance and crypto, particularly Bitcoin price. If there's any company which has the stomach for what's the potentially ahead it's probably this one but it's certainly going to be a fun one to watch the one thing i just wanted to dwell on because it really stuck out to me was the analogy with google and this is an interesting one from two perspectives firstly you know what we're talking about earlier as a disclosure perspective a lot of thought will have gone into do we try this don't we and secondly does it actually hang together? Because people like shorthand for companies, particularly ones which are new and doing things which are different, it gives them a mental hook or a reference point. Do you think this one works? 
I think that as Michael knows very well, companies in there from being an insider and, and meeting a lot of these companies in the private markets and then seeing their S1s, the story they tell in the S1 is a much broader, high level story. And, you know, they're attempting to, you know, build analogs to much greater and, and larger companies. It's interesting because if we go to Google, it's free, right? As a consumer, you're giving them your data and they're going and selling that data on the back end. But as a consumer, it's free. And so Coinbase, I don't know if you could say that they're really democratizing access to crypto, given if you're, if you're a retail investor and you want to go buy crypto, they charge you you know, 60 bips per transaction, which is 50x the cost of what it takes to buy a stock on an other exchange. And a lot of times it's free. So I think it's that one was a little bit of a stretch for me to see how Google and Coinbase and their respective markets are similar. But like I said, in S1s, companies like to draw analogs and it's a great one for Coinbase to draw on that element. But I think that one didn't quite pass the test for me personally, at least. I've also seen an analogy of like Netscape of crypto, but I don't think it stacks up. I mean, it stacks up definitely on a, on a, you know, which percentage of revenue, like the high concentration of revenues there is a, you know, from trading flow from retail and, you know, Google derives it from, from mainly ads and stuff, I think still like 96% or something. But also like Brian, I think mentioned in the founder letter that it's an email to a paper mail world. And, you know, Coinbase to traditional finance is like an email basically to, like they will exist together, right? So. I kind of didn't get that narrative, to be honest, and all the other comparison that, that there were sort of mentioned as well. I don't, I don't think it, it, it does stack up because, well, there is definitely a future in securities living on, on, on blockchain and there is absolutely you know, no chance that we need an ecosystem in the same shape or form that we had for the last 50 years of how they live today. Apart from everything else, that the pure network effect that is Google means Google is all dominance, whereas Coinbase is just the third largest doing what it's doing, and it's only doing it within retail with a large wave of institutions coming behind. So we've got a couple of minutes left, which comes to the utterly speculative, what happens next question. It's going to be somewhat in Coinbase's own control. It might also be correlated to bond yields, tech markets, all these other things that people are getting very excited about now. But as you look at this business today, Alex, how do you think about it over near term, long term? And how do you think investors will be weighing this out? Yeah, I think it's going to be all over the map. I think valuation for this one is pretty tough to pinpoint. There's just no real comp for it. I just have to imagine if the crypto market continues to grow, which I believe it will, that Coinbase is going to be a massive beneficiary of that. Their market share is growing they have not appeared to see much fee compression over time. And I do think a lot of investors will think of Coinbase as a way to play the crypto market, particularly on the large institutional side where access for them to buy crypto directly might not be as easy for them yet, although it's getting easier day by day. So I, um, I'm generally bullish on, on Coinbase, just given I'm a believer in the crypto market over the long term disrupting a lot of the legacy financial infrastructure that exists today. So it's going to be a fun one. I'm really excited about it. Cool. Mike, any last thoughts? I think it's going to, you're probably going to see some interesting volatility in this one in ways that maybe you hadn't in others. But you look at their shareholder profile, they've got 400 plus shareholders of record and about 1,200 employees, according to their S1. So there's close to 2,000 people that could be out there transacting in, in their shares within the first couple of days, just within the existing holders there, right? So, and then you've got, then you've got interest in it. So, you know, the interesting thing is if you go back and look at the draft registration statement that they put into the SEC earlier, they actually tried to create a token 
as well. And it looks like they gave up on that approach, just trying not to break too much glass with the, the SEC. But, you know, so this could have been far more interesting <laughs> So in terms of the amount of volatility and the amount of, of democratization that could have happened there. It, it'll be interesting. You may see this have a swing back towards we need more lockups in direct listings. You know, there might be a to, to create a little more stability. Just around the ability of analysts to release their research notes on this. How does that work with a direct listing versus an IPO? First off, the banks are, although they're not getting an underwriting credit for this one here, they're involved as advisors in large part because they want to get research reports out. It used to be that the FINRA rules wouldn't allow you to publish proximate to an IPO. You know, now that's that's much less limited there, but you also have to be careful that the, the banks who participate in the offering don't have their research reports basically imputed into the offering information for liability purposes. So most of the banks will, you know, wait a couple of days, initiate coverage to make sure that they don't have any confusion around that. But you'll definitely see not long after, probably in, in the first roughly, call it three weeks or so after the initial list, you'll start seeing research reports coming up from those banks. And then for the non-participating banks, Many of them, because this is a well-known company, will initiate coverage pretty quickly, maybe immediately. To summarize, if we can, we've ranged around, but this is a monster business. You just don't find companies of this profile like Coinbase very often. It's an early leader in a market that's incredibly nascent itself. It's unusually volatile and has correlations you don't see too often, which makes it extremely difficult to value. And the way it's going public through a direct listing is in some ways pretty standard form these days, but has nuances to it in this case, which haven't been seen before, certainly not in a listing of this scale. So definitely one which we should be keeping a close eye on. I just wanted to say a big thank you to Dimitri, to Alex, to Michael. We're pretty lucky having such great experience at our fingertips for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you all in a couple of weeks.